This would have been a great thing for me to do before the reading. <laughs> Where are we at? There we are. So, okay, we are in a conversation um, uh, called uh, Grace Period, and it is it, it is the passage of, of uh, Matthew's biography of Jesus that begins after Jesus comes down from the mountain on which he has preached the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, during this period of time, Jesus does not face the usual opposition that we see elsewhere in, in his biographies, um, that, that there is this kind of honeymoon period where people are actually listening to what Jesus has to say. They're observing him teaching. They're, they're seeing the, the signs that he performs. And they're actually pretty open-minded. And I think that that's a great place for us to to approach Jesus and say, how can I be more open-minded with Jesus? And today, the lesson that we're going to hear is very easy to miss because it's between a bunch of spectacular miracles. Last week, we looked at some miracles. Next week, there's going to be another miracle. And this is just Jesus talking. And it's kind of easy to say, well, yeah, but he's just talking right now. But it's worth paying attention to because Jesus is going to um, help us to understand how we can make better decisions. And in particular, how to make the big decision of whether or not to be a disciple um, and how we can grow as disciples. If we already made that decision how we can grow as his disciples so so um uh i want to i want to talk today about decision making so um so the the thing about being a uh, make, making decisions is it's hard you, you you all know how hard it is to make decisions um we're going to talk about decisions, yes. And decisions are hard. Um, and, and you all know how hard it is. Sometimes we just avoid them. Sometimes we're kind of afraid to make the decisions. But, but decisions are just intrinsically hard. Um, I don't know how many of you saw in the news today. They discovered, uh, this week uh, it was announced that they had discovered two new species of electric eel in the Amazon. So I, uh, this is the kind of news sites I follow. So, so, um, so, uh, and this one right here is interesting. It's, it's, it was previously unknown and it's called Electrophorus Volti and uh, because it's an electric eel, but it is the new champion that the previous record holder, the, the previous uh, uh, electric eel champion in terms of how much voltage it could deliver was a, a different species and it delivered 650 volts and this one delivers 860 volts. Now, I don't know a volt from an orange, but, but I assume it's something powerful. So, so, um, so, uh, the, the, the amazing thing about that electric eel is that there are three organs in its body that generate this electric current. And what I think is fascinating about that is we have electrical organs in our bodies too. Every one of us in our head has a three pound electrical organ. And that's why decision-making is so hard, because it's an energetic process. Our brain actually needs a lot of energy in order to do all that thinking. And um, so it uses our, our brains use more than their fair share of, of oxygen and of nutrients because it's, it's energetic, and it takes a lot of energy to do these things. Um, a couple of years ago, this man, Daniel Kahneman, he received the Nobel Prize in Economics for something called prospect theory because what he had discovered over the course of his career was that people are not computers. People don't don't make rational decisions. And the reason we don't make rational decisions is because decisions are hard. It's it's taxing to make decisions. So there's all kinds of ways that we we just kind of fudge. We we have little hacks in our head that help us to to get through life without actually making the best decisions. And, and just to give one example that that he um, characterized, he described this phenomenon called loss aversion. We're all loss averse. And I'll demonstrate it. Let's suppose I offered you right now even odds will flip a fair coin if it comes up heads, you pay me $100. And if it comes up tails, I pay you $100. Who likes that? 
The answer is nobody likes it. I mean, maybe once in a while somebody likes it because they're off on the edge of the bell curve or something. But but mostly we say, you know, you need to sweeten the pot. If you make it 150 or 170, there's some number at which, uh, you know, okay, all right, I like that better, right? But I don't want to just lose something even if it's a fair bet, right? Now, a calculator, a computer would say, those are fair odds. You can take either side of that bet. But we say, no, I don't like the losing part of that bet. And so so one of the things he discovered was people have loss aversion. It's one of the many tricks in our head that helps us make uh, or avoid making decisions. We have other ways, though, too. You don't need to be a Nobel laureate to know this stuff. Uh, you got here somehow. You drove your car here today to church, or in my case, I walked. And I did it successfully, and I didn't think about it the whole time. Now, if I was coming up Jewel Lake, maybe I thought, are they done fixing it yet or whatever? But, I mean, mostly I don't have to think about driving. I don't have to think about getting dressed. I don't have to think about tying my shoes. That There's just all these things I do habitually, and I don't have to think about them. Uh, Kahneman talks about the two different types of thinking. There's fast thinking and slow thinking. There's the, the stuff you don't even have to think about because it just kind of goes in, you know, goes goes right through your head. And then there's the stuff you have to shift down to low gear, and that's the energetic kind of thinking. And it takes a lot of energy, and it wears us out. We also have emotions. Um, uh, they, they've done these fascinating um, uh, studies. They found that people who have had damage to a part of the brain, it's right behind uh, the bridge of the nose, um, they, they have damage. There's an area there that processes emotions, and people who have damage to that brain, that part of the brain, they make terrible decisions. And the reason is because it's the emotion center. And so they, they, they have to actually think things through all the time. They can't just say, no, I don't like it. Well, you know, you and I do that. We've probably had arguments with people. We're trying to reason with them. And they're saying, I just like the red one, right? And, and, and you're saying, but, but, you know, the blue one holds its value more. You know, consumer reports, you know, I've got the data, you know, and, and, you know, there's a different brand and the warranty is better, but I like the red one. And so we use emotions as, a, as another hack to avoid making decisions. And I want to propose one more way you might think about avoiding those unnecessary decisions. And it's this. I propose discipleship. And I propose this particularly for those of you who are not Jesus followers. If you're saying, you know what, I don't know about, you know, seven days of creation or, you know, I don't, all those battles in the Old Testament. It's like, I'm not sure what I think about God. Let me just propose to you the same way you use habits and emotions, the same way you're loss averse, just as a hack to help you get through life. Let me suggest that you try being a disciple of Jesus. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he's okay with that. Jesus is not proud. He will meet you right there. So what I propose, if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, say, I'm going to follow Jesus to the extent that I understand anything about Jesus. I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do, except in the areas where I say no. Right? Because I'm just, no, no. I'm going to, the same way we, we, we make decisions, we say, you know, I'm governed by my habits, except sometimes I'm not. So I'm just saying, just try that on. Just try that on. You say, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing for 50%, and I'm going to do what Jesus says for 50%. And my guess, my guess, honestly, is that you will find that that other 50%, the Jesus 50%, is where you find your life thriving. And the place where you're finding regrets will be the other 50%. But what I'm sure of is that Jesus will meet you there. Jesus is not proud. He doesn't say, no, you have to take the whole package. He wants you to take the whole package. But he will meet you where you start. So if you're not sure what you think about Jesus, just try being a disciple. The same way you have habits and emotions, just say, I'm going to just try something. You know, even if I'm wrong a lot, you know what? For, f- batting 400 will get you into the Hall of Fame, right? So let's just try out Jesus. So, so 
if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not a Jesus follower, if you're not somebody who believes in God, then let me just suggest that just as a, as a, as a hack, as a way of kind of getting through your life, you know, defer the, the, the random decisions to Jesus and only think about a few of them yourself. So, so that's my proposal for everybody. Um, but now I want to tell you a secret. If you're in that category, so are a lot of Christians. Because a lot of Christians, we do the same thing. We, we follow Jesus, except there's, you know, this one over here. You know, there's the one over here where I, sometimes I try and sometimes I don't even try. Right? Because it's hard and it's just easier to go my own way. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about today. So, so the first thing is, if you're not a Jesus follower, just try being a Jesus follower. Just, you know, in the areas where you don't have any other, you know, where you don't care one way or the other. But if you are a Jesus follower, or if you're thinking, how can I grow in my discipleship? That's what Jesus is going to talk about in our passage today. So the first, the first point I wanted to make, um, sorry, I left that dangling. So the first decision is if you have, if you want to make better decisions, if you want to make decisions better, start by making less decisions. Just don't make so many. And the way you can do that is you can use your emotions, you can use your, your, um, uh, habits, and you can use Jesus. Just do what Jesus says as a, as a kind of first step. But now I want to talk about how you can grow as, as you, as you try that out, as you say, well, I wonder, I wonder if I could try Jesus teaching in this area where I've never really trusted him. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. So, Jesus, um, speaks to the, uh, Jesus has been speaking to the crowd. We saw that last week. And now he sees the crowd is still around him. And so what he does is he instructs his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. Now I've got a picture of the lake. This is the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's called the sea. Sometimes it's called the lake. It's a big lake. Um, uh, and, um, Jesus and most of the things we read about Jesus take place on the west side of the lake. That is the area of Galilee, and there's an area of, uh, called Ju- Judea, and in between them is the area of Samaria, and those are all on the west side of the lake. So whenever you hear about those places in the Bible, those are all on the west side of the lake. We never hear much about the east side of the lake, but Jesus is going to cross over to the east side of the lake. And we know we know a couple of things about that that, that time is that more Greek-speaking people lived on the east side of the lake, that people who spoke Aramaic would have been on the west side of the lake. So it's a whole different culture. The, the, the name of that region is called the Decapolis, which is actually a Greek word, as opposed to Galilee, which is an Aramaic word. So, so we see that the cultures are different. The food is going to be different. Next, uh, not next week, in a couple of weeks, we're going to hear about uh, a herd of pigs. There are no people keeping pigs in, in, uh, in Galilee, but they do keep them in uh, the Decapolis. So it's a whole different area. And Jesus is saying, let's go there. And his disciples have to face the, the, the tough decision. Is this an area where I'm going to trust Jesus? I've been following him around over here back in Bethsaida and Capernaum, and that's pretty easy. Right? That's, there's no, there's no pushback here. But now Jesus is inviting me to go to the other side of the lake, and it's gonna be different there. It's gonna be a lot different than it is here. And I'm wrestling with the question, can I trust Jesus here? Is this one of those areas where I can actually begin to trust Jesus where it does matter? As opposed to trusting Him where it doesn't matter. So, so, that's the, that's the situation. And, the first person we hear from is somebody who seems to be uh, a disciple, and he seems to say, you bet, I want to go over there. So he said that one of the teachers of the religious law says to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So um, so he is a teacher of the religious law, and that's kind of remarkable. If we if we look through the, the scriptures, 
as we read the New Testament, we see that the teachers of the religious law generally are hostile to Jesus. They don't like him. Um, and maybe this guy's uh, just an exception to the rule. Uh, maybe uh, there, there are some, there's at least one other scribe we know of, a teacher of the law, that Jesus speaks well of. So in um, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, um, uh, he's having a conversation. The teacher of the law says, well said teacher, well said Jesus. You have spoken the truth by saying there is only one God and no other. And I know it's important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. So he echoes back what Jesus has said. He says, this is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in law. He says, you have correctly summarized the entire law, which I've memorized, Jesus. You've summarized it in those two commandments. And he says, he says, I agree with you that you, you've put your finger on it. And Jesus says, realize, it's Jesus realizing how much the man understood, Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So we know that Jesus praises at least one of the scribes. In general, they're hostile to him, but this one is actually open-minded and says, you know, when I listen to Jesus, actually what he's proposing is what I've always understood God uh, was, was really up to. And so, so maybe it's uh, that this guy is just more open-minded, maybe, maybe whatever. But, um, but uh, Jesus... Um, says um, to to our scribe, the, the scribe in, in um, Matthew 8, he says, he pushes back. The guy says, I'm ready to go across. I'm ready to go across the other side of the lake. And Jesus says, foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. So apart from admiring creation and the nesting of birds and so forth, like we heard about today, what is Jesus getting at? I mean, you know, it, 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 birds, you know, Foxes, Jesus, Jesus comments on this because it's part of his creation and he's, he's very pleased with it. But what is he getting at here? He says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. What, what is he telling the scribe? I think what, what, um, he's obviously saying, if nothing else, is he's saying there's not going to be creature comforts over there. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be living pretty rough over on the other side of the lake. Um, don't expect a mint on your pillow every night because there won't be one. Uh, he's saying, you know, if, if that's what you're expecting, you're probably not going to get it. Um, and we know Jesus has been critical of the of the teachers of the law elsewhere. So, in that same passage of Mark 12, he says this to a about a, a different group of scribes. He says, "Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and see how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets." So he says that they like their they like their comforts. But I think Jesus is saying more than comforts, they like their security. They like having an established place in the pecking order at, at the top or near the top. They like that. They like the, 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 the trappings that come with their place in, in the culture. He says, he says, they like knowing where they fit into society. And he says, you're about to be in a place where you don't know where you fit in. Everything you've been counting on, from, from the food that it's safe to eat, to to the the language that people speak, it's all going to be up in the air on the other side of the lake. And if you're expecting it to be the same, if you need those things, if you're like the, the teachers of religious law who need to have those kinds of security blankets, if you need those crutches, you're not going to have them. Are you sure you want to follow me? And that brings us to our first point. What Jesus offers is... Security. Jesus says, you won't have the things you're used to, but he says, you will have me. I will be there. I'm not not sending you over there by yourself because I will be there with you. And if you follow me, 
I will give you the security you need. And the, the question for us is really the same question. What is it that we're looking for? Where do we find security in our lives? Because if we're looking at things like, you know, the food we eat or the time we come to worship in the morning or, or anything else, if, if we're looking at things, you know, the, the job we have, how, how, how many, um, dollars we've got in the bank account, if we have some idea that there's some place we can find security in the world other than Jesus, then the question to ask is, can that be taken away? Can I lose that? Because if you can lose it, how secure is it really? There was a um, missionary a couple of decades ago, Jim Elliott, and he told his uh, he told uh, people who were interested in why he was doing what he was doing. He said he said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, and that's what Jesus is offering to the scribe. He's saying the Son of Man will be on the other side of the lake. There won't be any place to lay your head. But the Son of Man will be there. Who is the Son of Man? This is the place where, where Matthew introduces, right in the middle of this, this uh, discussion, Matthew introduces the term Son of Man. He's going to go on and use it 30 times in this, in this biography of Jesus. But this is, the, this is the nickname that Jesus applies to himself. And what does Son of Man mean? Well, literally what it means is a human being. It means somebody whose parents were humans. So anybody you meet in the street is a Son of Man. Um, but... But it means more than that. In, in that culture, what it would have meant to anybody is the son of man that's described in the, the book of the, the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel is a prophet and he's having a vision one night and he says he's had a vision of God, the ancient of days he calls him. He says, and as my vision continued, after I had kind of seen God in the heavenly spectacle there, I saw someone normal. I saw a human being. I saw somebody who looked like the rest of us, someone who frankly looks like Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So Jesus is saying, where do you find security in your life? Where do you look to to find the things that you can ultimately lean on. Because if they're anything other than him, the Son of Man, they will pass away. So Jesus is challenging this scribe. Is the reason you're you're making this decision, or, or more likely in this scribe's case, is the reason you're going to go over with me and stick around with me for two days and then go home disappointed? Because you are leaning on something other than me. So... Some, some questions we can ask ourselves. We can ask, when I avoid acting on a decision, or when I regret a decision I've already made, why? What was it that I had hoped would happen that now has proven not to be the case? And then what assurance do I need to give me confidence so that I can move forward into the unknown, right? Where, where I'm not sure what, what the future holds, but I'm going to, to act anyway. What assurance do I need to give me that confidence? So that's the first encounter. Jesus immediately goes on and has a second encounter, the way Mike, uh, Mark, the way Matt tells it, Mike, Mark, Matt. So this guy who's writing this biography, Matthew, he he goes on and tells us the next thing. So he says another of his disciples, another of these disciples who's who's debating, should I go across the lake or not? He says, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. 
He says, I've got some things to do at home. And, and scholars have debated, you know, culturally, what would, what did he mean when he said, let me bury my father? Uh, if he could mean his father had died that day, because in, in Jewish culture, you buried the person the same day they died. So he could mean literally, I just got news, dad is dead. Or he could say, dad is sickly. Or he could say, you know what, dad's getting on in years. It could be any of those, and we just don't know which one. This guy is. Is he saying, you know, in five or ten years, sometime the old man's going to kick it, and then I'll be free to join you? Is that what Jesus is saying, or is he saying, no, I actually have to go home right now because I've got to bury my dad, and we just don't know which it is. But what Jesus says is shocking. It's shocking to us. Imagine your father is dead or is dying, and Jesus says, drop that. Don't worry about that. Follow me. That's what he tells this guy. And if it's insulting to us, it would have been shocking in the first century. It would have been horrifying in the first century. So Jesus says, uh, follow me now. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. This would have been shocking. You know, in our culture, we, we may have heard that you're supposed to honor your father and mother. We've heard of the Ten Commandments, but they're not the law, right? You know, no one's going to arrest you. The police car isn't going to show up outside your home if you don't honor your father and mother. But in Jesus' culture, it was the law. You did honor your father and mother. And Jesus says, follow me. So what does he mean? Well, if we, if we look at the context, remember just last week, six verses earlier, Jesus has healed Peter's mother-in-law. So if Jesus thought nothing of filial piety, if he thought nothing of of taking care of your parents, then it would have been the easiest thing for him to say, you know, let the old, let the old bird lapse into a coma and die. What do I care? Right? Jesus is not saying that. Jesus takes care of the mother-in-law. He heals her. So, so what is he saying? Well, if we read Mark, Mark 7, we know that Jesus keeps blistering contempt on one of the teachings of these same teachers of the law. Um, the, the Pharisees and the religious law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. I don't need to support my, my parents in their old age. This is before Social Security. I don't need to take care of them. He says, in this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. So Jesus, Jesus has, has no time for people who say that, that the things of God weigh more than taking care of one's parents. And then, of course, we think about Jesus on the cross. Jesus nailed to a cross, his arms spread wide, every breath in agony, and he saves two of them to make sure Mary's taken care of. He looks at the uh, disciple he loves and he says, Dear woman, this is your son. And he says to the disciple, This is your mother. And Jesus has been telling people for weeks that he will rise again in the third day. If Jesus is that concerned about his mother when he knows she's only going to be alone for three days, what does that say? Jesus is not saying, neglect your parents. He's saying, you need to get your priorities straight. So uh, question. Uh, so the next one, following Jesus clarifies our priority. I, I use the, the singular, which we don't see much anymore. There's a writer... Um, there's a writer, uh, uh, Greg McEwen, and he did a study of the word priority in English, and he found that it, was, it entered the English language in the 1400s, and it mean, meant then what it means now. It means the first thing on a list. It's the, the top of the list. Um, but for 500 years, the word priority was only in the singular, that it was the thing at the top of the list. But in the mid-1900s, 
people got clever and they said, I can have several things at the top of the list. So I can have several priorities. And he said, now the people in the 1400s were actually wiser than we are because we think we can do the impossible. We think we can have three things that are all at the top. And he said, no, you can't. And they knew that in the 1400s and we've forgotten it. So Jesus helps us clarify our priority. So we have to ask ourselves, what's first? This guy says, following you is important. I'm going to get to that right away, Jesus. I'm going to be right on top of that as soon as these other priorities of mine get resolved. And Jesus says, no, you only have one priority. If you follow me, I'll take care of the rest. Now, I I like to play out in my mind, based on what we know about Jesus and his concern for parents, what would he have said if this guy said, okay, all right, I'm all in, sign me up, I will go wherever you go, I will do whatever you say. My guess is Jesus would have said, now go home and take care of your dad. And the reason I say that is because I know lots of people who've done the same reason, done the same thing for the same reason. I know people who've turned down promotions because they, their Christian faith told them that they needed to be home with the family more. And this job required too much travel. I've known people who quit jobs because the business practices made them uncomfortable. I've known people who were at-home moms and they, they found their work fulfilling, but they thought that what they needed to do was to be home for their kids. So my guess is that Jesus would have told this guy, now, now that you've got your priorities straight, go home and take care of your dad. I'll be back from the lake in a few, in a few verses. But the question for us is, where is Jesus in our priority list? Is he at the top? Or do we have two or three things up there at the top? And if so, which one of them is the real priority? And so the, the, the opportunity for us is to ask ourselves, um, um, where, where are our priorities? What, what makes something important? We're going to say, I'm going to do this, or I'm not going to do this. What makes that important? What makes it something you're actually going to spend some of that mental energy on? Why is that important? And then ask yourself about your priorities. How do they align with Jesus's? If, if Jesus ranked your, your same, your same to-do list, if Jesus ranked it, would he put things in the same order? You know, would, would he put the same things at the top? Would he put the same things at the bottom? Ask yourself, how do my priorities align with Jesus's? Because what Jesus does is he gives us security. He reminds us, this is the Son of Man. This is not just some earthly teacher. This is not just a hack we can use to simplify our decision-making process. He is the Son of Man, and he offers us security, and he offers us clarity. So think about your own life. What would your decisions be like if you could really lean into the fact that Jesus is the Son of Man? What priorities would you change? What would be the priority, and what would be the priority under that? And then I would ask the same question of us as the church. What would it look like if people could see us living out our mission as a church to be part of the people of God, acting the same way? If we actually were full-blown, all-in disciples of Jesus. If we didn't have that little area where we're saying, you know, I mostly follow Jesus, but in this one area I'm going to do my own thing. Imagine what it would be like if the church was unified and solidly behind the idea of following Jesus in every area, no matter how how dangerous or or weird the other side of the lake looks like. Imagine if the future that Jesus sees we could face without worry because we know that we're with the Son of Man. That's the vision that Jesus is presenting to us, that we could actually be disciples, not in one area, but in every area of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this teaching.
um, about discipleship because too often in too many places of our life we have said, ah, discipleship is hard here. Discipleship uh, presents me with things that make me nervous and so I'm not comfortable. Or this is a good place to be a disciple, but I have other things I need to do more. So Lord, help us to remember that we can only have one priority and that it should be the Son of Man. And help us to remember that if we are where Jesus is calling us, then there is no safer place to be. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.